Welcome back to Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. I am Joël Charrière, and today we'll start a discussion on inclusion, inclusivity, and diversity in outdoor education. It's come to my attention from reading forums, from speaking with colleagues, that there is a lack of inclusion and diversity, or at least ideas on how to do so in outdoor education and generally in the outdoors industry in North America. Now, I absolutely don't promise to have any sort of answers for you here today. I do promise, however, to get the conversation started and to give you at least a few things to start thinking about and mulling over. Uh, we'll be talking with Micah Meyer, a phenomenal young man who in one three-year-long trip uh, visited all 419 U.S. National Service sites and how he has become an inspiration to LGBTQ youth around North America and the world for that matter. I wanted to preface the show today by, first of all, actually letting you know why I haven't produced anything in two plus months. I recently moved during the pandemic and it took me a lot longer than I'd anticipated it would to get my studio back in order, yeah, you know, even to get my thoughts back in order. Uh, it was quite a stressful situation moving amidst a pandemic um, and it slowed down my, my kind of schedule for production. That being said, I did manage to get a few interviews in during that time that I'm really excited to share with you. Uh, so I'll give you a snippet of what's to come at the end of the show. So like I said in the introduction, it's come to my attention that outdoor ed and the outdoor industry as a whole has a problem. And that problem is that it is white and it is straight. Um, you know, as recently as uh, two years ago, Mountain Equipment Co-op came out and publicly made an apology for their lack of inclusion and lack of diversity. And I've been doing some reading on this. I am by no stretch even close to, to remotely knowing maybe even the tip of the iceberg about it. But I'm acknowledging my own position of privilege as a straight white European descendant male uh, and acknowledging that I have things to learn. And I think this is the, the best place for us all to start is to look at our own privilege. And I'm reminded of a, a picture that I once, I don't remember if it was myself or if it was my, um, my teacher that I was working with when I was doing some graduate studies. And it was a picture, a cartoon of multiple different people standing in a room wearing different backpacks. And everybody had a different size backpacks. And the backpack obviously is a representation of that person's burden. Uh, some people had different size backpacks. Uh, there was one cartoon character in there who was in a wheelchair who had a larger backpack. There was one person who had colored skin in there who had a different size backpack. And then, of course, there's the typical white guy standing in the middle room with a tiny little backpack saying, what? What's wrong, guys? I'm wearing I've got a backpack, too. And the idea is this is, is such it's that we do have a burden. We all have a burden. And yet our burdens are not the same. And so I want to begin today's episode by simply stating and acknowledging that my burden in life has been less than that of others. And I'm cognizant of that. And I'm taking steps to try to understand where my privilege has maybe maybe a better way of saying it is how how I've managed to be blind to that privilege, because the things that I perhaps am oblivious to, I'm fortunate to be able to be oblivious to. And I'm going to put my bias on display today in my interview with Micah Meyer, trying to understand what some of the challenges are that I am oblivious to, things that I don't see or perceive as being an issue because I simply don't know any better. 
And so I've got Micah Meyer on the show today. Micah has traveled on a one, one long three-year trip, all 419 U.S. National Service sites. I asked him to describe that for me because, you know, I'm a Canadian. I don't actually know what a U.S. National Service site is. So he'll go into detail about that and explain to us kind of what his trip was. I was fascinated by the trip from the get-go and the fact that he did so while being publicly gay and that caused him some issues that, you know, a straight white male would not have faced. And so he will go into some of the challenges that he faced as a result of being gay and how he turned those and how he's leveraged that into a giant campaign that has been leveraging the industry to acknowledge not only the presence of, but the purchasing power of this community uh, and how he has become a voice and a a strong activist proudly waving the flag and letting people know that, hey, gay, trans, whatever, wherever you fit on the spectrum, you belong here in the outdoors. Nature doesn't care. And we're going to make sure that retailers learn that. And so he's become a strong advocate. Uh, he has a massive social media presence. And I, I urge you to go check him out. I'm going to put a link in the show's notes so that you can go directly to his site. But I won't keep you any longer. I'll leave you with the interview. Here it is. All right, Micah, thank you for joining me. I'm super happy to have you with me today. And I'm most curious right off the hop about Vanny McVanface. <laughs> can you tell me about your ride? And let me preface this. Micah did a, an outstanding trip. He did a three-year road trip. He went to all 419 national service sites, traveling in a van called Vanny McVanface, which was lovely for me. I'm a huge science nerd. Everybody who listens knows that. I also teach science. So that, you know, reference to Bodie McBoatface uh, made <laughs> me very happy. So can you tell me about Vanny McVanface, Micah? Well, Vanny McVanface was birthed really because of Bodie McBoatface. I was sitting in this empty shell of a 70 square foot cargo van, literally putting up um, the insulation and listening to the radio and hearing the story about Bodie McBoatface. And my boyfriend at the time was helping me put all the insulation in. And he said, you know, we should, we should name this Vanny McVanface in honor of Bodie. And he was joking, <laughs> but I think some of the best ideas come from jokes. And I said, Absolutely. that's it. That's exactly Vanny's name. And ever since that was it. And it just fit. The name just fit. So you right. traveled three years in this van. Tell me about your trip. Hearing it back now, it's it's hard to believe that I lived in a van for three years because it is. I look at people doing it now and it looks so glamorous on social media, which is one of the reasons why I did it financially was the main reason. But it's just hard to believe that that I did that and did it for as long as I did. Some of it was amazing. It, it gives you incredible freedoms that a settled life can't give you. But it's also it's a real test on on both your physical self and your mental self. Absolutely. So you traveled alone for three years. Uh, yes and no. So I started the trip. Uh, when I was dating someone and and we talked about it and decided that he was going to come along and he and I lived in that 70 square feet for a little over a year together and then he said you know I've had I've had a lot of adventure this is more adventure than I want in my life so I'm gonna I'm leaving the trip and I'm leaving you mm. um, 
to our credit, though, many of our friends said I could not spend even three months with my spouse, who I've been married <laughs> ten years, yeah. living in a van, doing what you two did. So, um, no hard feelings for either of us. It was it was a very intense experience that we're both proud we lasted as long as we did. So, yeah, the first year was was with someone and then the final two years were by myself. Wow. That's that, you know, and you speak the truth there. Traveling with someone is a totally different, uh, it's a totally different thing. I, I did a cycle tour of the you know, maritime provinces, Eastern Canada with uh, my, it was fiance at the time. And uh, we knew that once the, once the trip was over and we hadn't killed each other, that, you know, we were mm -hmm. in it for the long haul. <laughs> But I want to hear more about your trip. 419 U.S. national service sites. This is not just national parks. What Can you just define what these national service sites are for those of us who don't know what a service site is? Yeah, so it's, um, it's some hot debate you'll see in the comment section every so often whenever there's an article because there are 62 capital N, capital P national parks, which are like Yosemite and Acadia and Everglades mm -hmm. and the ones that a lot of people have heard of. But then there's 419 National Park Service sites, which you'll often hear abbreviated as just national parks, lowercase and lowercase p. So okay. You'll hear like a park ranger, for example, say, we have 419 national parks. And then somebody will raise their hand and say, no, you don't. You have 62. Mm. So essentially, yeah, most, uh, most of our best known sites have this capital N, capital P moniker. But what I learned was that a lot of them started out as national monuments or national seashores or national lakeshores, these 20 other designations that all make up the entirety of what our National Park Service manages. Yeah. So I decided to sort of go one step further than a lot of people who do the 62 parks as their bucket list and go all the way. Hmm. So what was your most memorable experience during the journey. I mean, I think back to my, my trip and, uh, you know, I, I could share them with you, but I, I also don't want to put words in your mouth, but what was your most memorable experience from this whole trip? Oh gosh. I mean, there were so many, like the cliched, incredible sunsets. I had this one incredible experience in Badlands National Park in South Dakota, mm -hmm. where I had been traveling around the country with this rainbow flag, taking pictures at all the iconic National Park Service sites with this one flag. And I was in Badlands, this huge gust of wind came as I was taking the photo and the flag flew out of my hand <laughs> down into this ditch of really soft, like porous rock. So I knew there was no way I could go down there or I'd, I'd be gone. Yeah. And I was so sad, this flag I'd had for years, this thing that was in all my photos. And then this massive storm came through and I got in my van and I sat it out and then after the storm, this huge rainbow that spanned the entire arc of the park appeared. And I thought, well, I lost one rainbow, but I got an incredible one making up for it. So there were just tons of really sort of spiritual experiences like that. I had one that is one of my favorite memories where a wild Canadian goose followed <laughs> my rafting group for four days and three nights. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Oh, those geese. Like followed our raft, followed us through rapids, got sucked under the water, slept yeah. next to our tent at night, hiked up a mile into the canyons with us. It was the most insane thing ever. That's too cool. I love it. 
So you, you refer a lot to, you know, you took pictures with this flag. You do a significant amount of activism. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, did some of this activism not also fund a certain part of your, your trip? Yeah, it, it was interesting. When I started this journey, I, I had been openly gay for a decade. I had worked and volunteered in LGBT rights and activism and was living in Washington, D.C. at the time where it's, it's one of the gayest cities in America. And so wasn't really worried about that part of, of this journey. But then I did some research and I realized that at the time I started my trip, the outdoors industry in America had never in its history had a Pride Month ad or mm. had an openly LGBT person in any ad. And, and the more research I did, the more I realized that outdoors culture in America had this reputation for being pretty homophobic. Yeah. And so yeah. I knew I had to crowdfund if I was going to survive on this trip. I'd only saved up enough to start it. And I was worried that if people knew that I was gay, that they wouldn't support the project because I didn't fit the stereotype. Yeah. And sort of over the three years, what ended up saving the trip was that eventually I did come out professionally and share this part. And that was really when people started to donate because at first they thought I was some spoiled trust fund kid, which wasn't the case, but I understand from the headline. And then once people realized that it was trying to create this role model that didn't exist, the donations came in a lot more because people said, you're right. We haven't seen this. We do need to see this and you're the only one doing it. So here's 20 bucks. Wow. So, so you were out publicly like to your peers for a decade prior, but not professionally. If I, if I got that right. Yeah. Yes. And no. I mean, I was what I call gay on Google, which means if you met me or if I applied for a job and you Googled my name, like you could read stuff I'd written on the Huffington post about being gay op-eds I'd done. Um, but I, I sort of saw this trip as well, it was my job. I mean, I had to survive financially to, to complete this goal mm-hmm. of visiting the parks. And the original intention was just to um, use the passing of my father and this lesson I learned from his death that we really need to chase our dreams as soon as possible yeah. and, and get that message out to people in a positive way. And I knew I could only do that if I could figure out a way to, to make this trip my job and fund it. So Mm-hmm. I sort of say out professionally in the sense that I had never talked about being gay in the sense that it related to my job. Yeah. And, and so that became a part of it. I, I love that you bring up the point that when you came out professionally is when the donations started coming in as those kind of a catalyst where, where all of a sudden people realized and were, you know, they were supportive of, of the diversity in the outdoor culture. Uh, and you mentioned that nobody in America had really had a, a gay spokesperson in terms of the outdoor industry. Now, that reminds me, uh, I remember in 2018, I got uh, an email from Mountain Equipment Co-op, which is the Canadian equivalent kind of of REI. Mm-hmm. And they had penned an open letter apologizing for the lack of diversity in all of their advertising. Everybody had oh, been wow. previously kind of white uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon. And I mean, we, we'd all be silly to, to deny the fact that uh, North American view of kind of outdoorsiness and mountaineering is heavily kind of Eurocentric. Like there's, there wasn't a lot of diversity and they actually penned an open letter in 2018 to apologize for that. 
But the the thing is that that's only a year and a half ago. Uh, and and of course, this is one of the few companies that have come out and done this. How has the response been to you? Because you mentioned that the donations started coming in once you came out kind of professionally. How's the response been from sponsors, um, you know, anybody, even youth that you meet along the way? Well, that's what's been so fascinating about this is when I started my my journey, I was living a half a mile away from Marriott's world headquarters in, in the greater Washington, D.C. area. And this is a company that was started and still is owned by Mormons. And yet they have been sponsoring Washington, D.C.'s Pride Festival for nearly a decade. And they have an annual campaign all targeted at the LGBT pink dollar, which is now nearly a trillion dollar purchasing power in the U.S. alone. And so I looked around and saw all these other companies that that were very much embracing LGBT inclusion. And I was so shocked to see the outdoors industry be so far behind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I hid that part of myself at first and I did have some small sponsors. And unfortunately, once I did come out professionally, one of them dropped me and they said in writing, it's because you're talking about being gay. Wow. And so, yeah, it, it was it was sort of my greatest fear was here was this culture that wouldn't want me to be this way. And now this was proof. And a beautiful arc to that story was that a year later, I ended up working on REI with a campaign in October of 2018. And from all my research, it turned out it was the first time that any outdoors company in the U.S. had worked with an openly gay man. So here I was able to use this trip to go from this incredible low point to this high point that's now making a difference. We see, we still have so far to go, but this year alone, there are so many more companies in the outdoors industry that are doing some sort of LGBT outreach and and might be further back than the rest of corporate America, but things are, are changing right now. And so it's for that reason, when I, when I talk to students, when I go to high schools and colleges and speak at corporate events, I share this story because I thought I had to be just like everybody else to make an impact when in reality, my difference was my strength and leaning into that thing I was most afraid of is what ended up making the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. That's, that's beautifully said. I, I, I think that hits the nail on the head really. Um, what I want to know is, you know, you do a lot of advocacy and, and like you said, you do speaking engagements for, um, the corporate world and at at colleges and whatnot. But, um, I, I'm a, I'm an outdoor ed teacher. I, I teach in a small, well, not small, my, I teach in a very large high school actually, but my, my classroom is small. You know, I have 24, 25 students usually, um, I, I strive to make that space a safe space for everyone, but I know that I don't have the clout that big companies have to, to kind of foster change. How does a guy like me or a, you know, a teacher who wants to do more and, and encourage their students to, to learn about themselves and to learn to go outside, how, how can I make a difference? I mean, like... I don't have the same soapbox that you do, right? You, you've done this outstanding trip and you can be a really powerful advocate for that. How does a small little person make a difference? Well, number one, you're not a little person. And number two, I love 
the terminology that you used there, the safe space, because I'm actually working on a project as we speak that that was inspired by the safe space symbols that I've seen now in schools, uh, at least around the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have and, them in Canada um, also. Yeah, by uh, by the time this airs, um, people should be able to go to my social media pages and I'll have launched that project by then. But I think it's really important that uh, whoever we are, whether we have a company-wide platform, a, a social media platform, or a classroom, that we are vocal about our allyship. Mm-hmm. So many people say to me, you know, nature doesn't care if you're gay. And I totally agree. Nature doesn't care, but people do. So when I'm out on the trail or on a hiking or a rafting trip, or I meet strangers, I'm out in the middle of nowhere without cell phone service. I don't know if they're okay with every part of who I am or not. And if we start talking about our personal lives, if I can share this. Yeah. So yeah. there are things they can do. You know, if they said, well, do you have a girlfriend or boyfriend? Or, you know, are you, things that we, the way we speak, um, maybe just not speaking in a way where we assume everyone is straight or we assume that everyone will meet on the trail will be white. Um, little implicit biases we have, such as when we tell a story about a doctor, we almost always make the doctor a male right. instead of making the doctor a female. So sort of focusing on little things like that is, is something we can do to unconsciously help people. Yeah. And then just being visible as an ally saying, saying, um, Things in ways that show people that you are supportive of the LGBT community, whether that's through your words or this safe space logo that you uh, might have in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Basically, the more we can provide examples of representation and provide examples of ourselves showcasing that diverse representation, it just sort of becomes normal. Yeah. And I'm I'm really hoping that, you know, as a result of your advocacy. And, and your trip and the fact that you've partnered with REI and, and done these things. Have you seen an increase in, in LGBTQ people in the outdoor scene in America? Oh, totally. I mean, it's, uh, I wrote an op-ed for High Country News a year ago that sort of compared the, the changes in just the three years of my trip. And it's amazing to see what's happened in that time. Uh, a friend of mine, Hannah Malvin, and uh, another colleague, Elise Rylander, created something called the LGBTQ Outdoor Summit, which has existed now for three years and is growing each year. Uh, there is a drag queen who uh, specializes in in doing drag in the outdoors, who has gotten some amazing traction. <laughs> That's cool. His name is, um, or her name, her her drag persona is Patagonia. <laughs> and there are there are companies that sort of year by year step on board. Uh, yeah. I'm now working with Eddie Bauer. They have something called an all outside program that mm-hmm. has uh, people who are differently abled, who are um, minority skin tones, who are transgender, who are uh, different sizes, and they're hiring consultants now, people to help them make their company and the outdoors more inclusive. So yeah. it might not be on this grand scale yet, but every month, every year, we see more and more people getting involved. Yeah. So were you always interested in the outdoors? 
Uh, it's funny. I, I grew up in Nebraska, which is about one of the flattest states <laughs> in the country. Hey, I'm in Manitoba. We're just north of you. It's yes. just, it's the same. It's the same. I had a, I had a great friend who lived, uh, who grew up in Lincoln and I went to visit one time and I felt like I was right at home. <laughs> Yes, the plains, the prairies. Yeah. We, uh, our Nebraska state capital is one of only a few vertical capitals in the U.S., and its nickname is the penis of the prairie because <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere and everything else is flat. Um, I laugh, though, that somebody that grew up in Nebraska would want to spend a lot of time in mountains and valleys. And um, Adventure has always been a big part of my life, and I never thought that being gay would keep me from being interested in that. But the older I got, the more I noticed that there was no gay bear grills. Right. And sort of this idea was that if you like the outdoors and you like adventure, then it's manly and masculine and gay men are not manly and masculine and women are not manly and masculine. Women is, is another demographic that the outdoors industry has been focusing on a lot. Yeah. Heavily. So, yeah, just this, this idea that adventure and outdoorsmanship is masculine, I think, keeps a lot of people away. Yeah. And that's an interesting observation. Like looking at my own student body, I would say in the past year, I've probably had about 70% of my students in my outdoor ed class who've been female. Hmm, that's yeah. great. It is. It's, it's, it's amazing because they come out and they learn these skills that they may not have associated with you know like girls like uh, girls don't do this yeah absolutely they do they do they go out and they tie bear bags and they chuck them over tree branches and they're really good at it <laughs> yeah so i i don't want to keep you too much longer i'm super mindful uh, of uh, taking up your time here but i have two questions for you one of them i think you basically already answered okay. um but do you have a pet peeve something that people kind of do unconsciously that perpetuates discrimination in the outdoors Ooh, that's interesting i mean it it sort of goes back to that whole stereotype of, of to be outdoorsy is to be masculine because people say to me, you know, there's tons of lesbians involved in the outdoors industry. And I completely agree. I've met so many of them, um, but they aren't featured as out lesbians. And once again, you have yeah. uh, somebody who's taking on what's considered a, a masculine characteristic. So yeah, a pet peeve I would say is just that there are only that there's a certain type of outdoorsy person and that certain type is a straight white male with a beard who wears flannel and drinks beer. Good God. You just described me. I mean, <laughs> I go to the outdoor, <laughs> I go to the outdoor retailer exposition every year. And it's like, if you don't look like that, you don't fit the mold. So I always try to wear a bright colored suit to make sure that people realize, yeah, you know, we're diverse. Absolutely. And uh, to, to finish off this interview, Micah, I have this one burning question for you. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? <laughs> oh, not what I was expecting. I was, I was ready for you to ask my favorite National Park Service site. Well, that but, too, but we'll get to that. Gosh, now, I mean, oh, it's, uh, I have had a hard time resisting recently when I walk through the store, the Ben and Jerry's Tonight Dough. Ooh, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm That's a big a gooder. chocolate chip cookie dough fan, but then like you mix in the peanut butter and the chocolate and <sighs> they got me. Oh man. We are cut from the same cloth. Uh, chocolate chip cookie dough is like my vice. I cannot, I cannot stay away from it. It's so um, good. So, but yes, you mentioned it. What was your favorite national site? Uh, it's one, it was the one where I had the, the experience with the goose, uh, which oh, yeah. 
I still say, even aside from that, it's one of the best places we have to offer it in our country, and that's Dinosaur National Monument. Mm-hmm. And if you head to my website, uh, you can see a really cool three-minute summary, both of the park and of my experience with George the Goose, as we named him. It's just, it's this incredible place that so few people have heard of. It's out in the middle of nowhere, and because of that, you can really have the park to yourself. And in an age where you get smacked by somebody's iPad, you get blocked in by a tourist bus, or you're at the most beautiful sunset and there are screaming children, I've learned to really appreciate those hidden gems. Absolutely. Micah, thank you so, so much for spending some time with me. My pleasure. One of my favorite things to do when I'm getting ready to publish an episode is to listen to the interview over again and to just kind of relive those experiences, relive that moment. I absolutely love the stories that Micah shared with us today about his flag disappearing and then the giant rainbow coming out, um, you know, the goose, George, all of that stuff I loved. And, you know, when he made that comment about there's no gay bear grills, that's one that's one that really struck with me. It, it, it struck me and it, it stayed with me because he's right. And the thing is, you know, every year I look at the kids I've taught in outdoor ed and typically by the time they finish high school, I'm looking at about four to five kids who will come out at some point through their high school years that went through my, my outdoor ed class. And I'm wondering, what effect did I have on them? Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel that they belong in the outdoors? And those are the questions that I have to ask myself and continue asking myself. Not long, actually, I think it might have even been the same day that I did the interview with Micah. I was actually just scrolling on Instagram and somebody that I follow posted an allyship do's and don'ts. And it really struck me. Um, it, it, it was kind of to, to go off of the Black Lives Matter movement that is really having a ton of influence in the U.S. right now, if you follow the U.S. news at all. Um, and the first do it said was educate yourself. And the first don't it said was place the, do not place the burden of education on those to whom you want to be an ally. And I almost felt bad that I reached out to Micah. And I'm so Micah, if you're listening to this, I'm so thankful that you took the time to speak with me, but also for everyone who's listening, because I understand that you are crazy busy and you're probably being pulled every which way right now during Pride Month and everybody wants to know, hey, what's it like? What's it like? But I think that, Micah, you're doing phenomenal work. Um, You know, everybody who listened to this episode is going to have grown a lot just from from hearing the message that you've had to say. And so I really want to thank you if you're listening. And for those of you who are listening uh, that are not Micah, I will put a link in the show notes to a guide to allyship. It has a lot of great things on there, do's and don'ts, ways to go about it. Being an ally is hard work. And I think the first thing we should all be doing is figuring out how we can become an ally while not putting the burden on others. Again, I'm infinitely thankful, Micah, that you took the time to speak with me. And uh, I hope that it wasn't too much of a burden for you. On that note, uh, it is June is almost over. It has been Pride Month. Uh, you know, fight bigotry. Let people know that they're welcome. If you're a teacher, put up a safe space sticker in your classroom. Let people know that diversity is welcome everywhere you go. Be an ally. Be vocal about it. And, uh, you know, 
this is a discussion that we need to keep having. I'm hoping that this is only the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of a dialogue that we'll be having occasionally throughout this podcast. Uh, this is part one of a diversity or inclusion series. I'm hoping to have other people on the show and to keep kind of pushing this idea of how do we make sure we become inclusive in our outdoor classrooms. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next time on the show, we'll be actually looking at small steps. How do we get started? Small little things that we can do as a classroom teacher to start taking your class outside. So that'll be next time on the show. Have a great one. Hope you listen again. If you haven't listened to my previous episodes, please do. You've been listening to Disconnect, the Outdoor Education Podcast. I'm Joël Charrière. If you wanted to get a hold of me, and I would love to hear from you, you can reach me at disconnectpodcast at protonmail.com. Have a good day.